This podcast is brought to you by Kaya FM in partnership with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. Each day, every week, COVID-19 presents us with immediate and pressing concerns. The future seems distant and clouded, profoundly insecure. But the hard questions and critical choices that will shape the post-coronavirus world are on the table, in front of us right now. The search for answers has begun. Welcome to Beyond Corona, South Africa and the world after the pandemic. It's brought to you by Kaya FM in association with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. I'm John Perlman. In our second episode, we'll look at how global politics have already shifted dramatically. There will be more profound changes ahead in the years to come. How will tensions between China and the US affect Africa? Will the European Union grow weaker? How much will debt and economic distress determine relationships between countries and regions? Joining me to explore these issues, we have two guests. Dr. Greg Mills is the director of the Brent Hurst Foundation. Dr. Mills, welcome to you. Good morning. Dr. Kubis van Staden is a senior researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs. Uh, Kubis van Staden, welcome to you as well. Good morning. Let's begin by reflecting on what one analyst called the determining geopolitical relationship of the 21st century. Take a listen to this. Well, you know, when I listen to the press every night saying we have the most, we don't have the most in the world deaths. The most in the world has to be China. It's a massive country. It's gone through a tremendous problem with this, a tremendous problem. And they must have the most. We have a lot of discussions going on with China. Let me just put it this way. I'm not happy, okay? I'm not happy. And I spoke to them, and this could have been shut down a long time ago. It's President Donald Trump, whose hostility towards China has grown and grown. The Chinese foreign ministry has had plenty to say in response. Recently, some politicians in the United States have linked the new coronavirus to China, which is a stigmatization of China. We are strongly indignant and firmly opposed to it. The World Health Organization and the international community are clearly opposed to stigmatization and linking the virus to specific countries and regions. We urge the U.S. to immediately correct its mistake and stop its unjustifiable accusations against China. The novel coronavirus is spreading around the world, and the most important issue now is that the international community should actively cooperate in the fight against it. The United States should do its own work first and play a constructive role in maintaining global public health and safety through international cooperation. At this time when we need to work together to fight the epidemic, no country can be left alone. All countries must work together to face the current difficulties. That's the only way that we can defeat this epidemic as soon as possible. Dr. Mills, uh, plenty of political hostility between China and the United States, and yet there is a profound economic relationship. 2019, the U.S. imported $452 billion worth of goods from China. In the same year, $107 billion of goods went the other way. And perhaps most significantly, um, in November of that year, the U.S. owed China one point. One trillion dollars. Does that, no pun intended, trump the politics and the wrangling? To a certain extent, it does. But even before uh, this crisis, uh, the relationship between China and the U.S. had cooled markedly. That relates, relates, of course, to the very reason why Donald Trump got elected in the first place, about a fear of the loss of American jobs. 
But I think undoubtedly you'll see, uh, and this is partly now driven by not so much his domestic political constituencies, but also a strategic sense of security, you'll see a, a certain degree of onshoring, to use Trump's term, uh, businesses being encouraged to move back uh, to their local environment. Uh, and I think you'll see a degree of tension continue to ramp up between China and the U.S. Um, the Chinese slice in the global economy is, of course, increasing all the time, representing its considerably larger population uh, and, and, and it's also expanding its territorial and geopolitical influence across the world through the Belt and Road Initiative, of course, coming into Latin America, traditionally an American bastion of influence, as well as Africa and through the Middle East, uh, and, and certainly uh, uh, increasing its presence in, in the Asia-Pacific. And for all these reasons, both in the political domain and the security domain, on the one hand, and also in the area of the realm of economics, I think you're going to continually continue to see a degree of tension, and the, of course, the election later this year, if it happens, yes. should happen, um, is undoubtedly going to be fought at least on two platforms. One is, of course, the economy. Uh, um, you know, to 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 remind one of those famous words, it's all about the economy, stupid, uh, and to, to an extent it will be about the economy, but it'll also be about China. And both uh, Donald Trump and his contender, the former Vice President Joe Biden, have made it clear that they're going to fight this on an anti-Chinese platform, probably from different directions. So I don't expect Wuhan or no Wuhan, COVID or no COVID, for this this tension between the United States uh, and China to change much. It was there before the crisis. It's going to, to remain after the crisis and probably increase in volume uh, and in and difficulty and in temper. Kubis van Staden, does this present challenges for the rest of the world and uh, countries like ours in particular, or does it create opportunities as well? It's a mix of challenges and opportunities. Challenges in the sense that a lot of the, a lot of countries are coming under increasing pressure to choose one or the other. Um, you know, as as the, the relationship between China and the U.S. gets more and more tense, um, smaller countries are frequently, you know, are, are pulled in different directions. Um, most of the small countries actually don't want to be made to choose. They want to work with both um, because they want to, to maximize their options. Um, but at the same time, we've seen in the past that Africa has been quite adept at playing off the West and China to, to get better deals for itself. The question, however, I think at the moment particularly becomes, um, you know, as both of those countries are so so wrapped up in their own domestic issues and also increasingly in, in tensions with each other, um, it's, it's difficult for, for Africa to to get the world um, to get bandwidth in the world, particularly in relation to very pressing issues like debt relief. Um, so I think that that is a real danger at the moment. That you know that that real African concerns can be drowned in the, the kind of back and forth between the US and China. Part of those US imports from China are goods where American manufacturers sent materials to China for low cost assembly, and then they come back to the United States. Computers, cell phones, uh, and so on. If the political tensions ratchet up further between those two giants. Does Africa get a look-in as a possible alternative assembly point? Well, yes, hopefully it does. Uh, of course, Africa's got to do certain things to be able to become part of that onshoring or reshoring process. 
I mean, some of that was happening anyway because costs were, were increasing in China uh, and this tends to be an industry that people go to the lowest labor cost destination. Uh, and, and so those businesses were already moving, as they have traditionally done across Southeast Asia. They were moving away from China towards lower labor cost markets, such as in Vietnam, Bangladesh and the like. But Africa could stand to benefit from the roughly 100 million or so Chinese jobs that will inevitably uh, this crisis or not, have moved out of uh, the Chinese economy and gone somewhere else. But to do that, we have to position ourselves. We have to be able to attract uh, those manufacturing entities. We have to put in place the conditions for diversification, which include you know, guarantees to businesses that are investing, which currently don't exist. We have to make available cheap power, but probably more than anything else, we have to ensure that we are inserted in two ways. One, into global logistics chains and reducing the cost of moving goods in and out is absolutely crucial. Uh, it's all about logistics costs at the end of the day, adding or not adding a premium onto the cost of these goods. And then, and in the other respect, we have to insert ourselves in the minds of those entrepreneurs and, yes. and make ourselves uh, part of that global opportunity. You know, there is a degree to which there's a sort of schadenfreude uh, about what's happening between China and the U.S., particularly uh, from Africa towards the U.S. market, saying, you know, uh, this is, in, in a sense, the, the sort of inevitable decline of empire. But together, these two economies are 40% of the global economy. From $34 trillion, and that puts your $1 trillion debt figure into perspective, $34 trillion of an $84 trillion U.S. dollar global economy. We can ill afford in Africa that either of them flutter or stumble. What we want to see, and this is the very difficult path that we have to navigate, we want to see both prospering. And our politics have to be geared towards us. So, Kubus van Staden, how is this all affecting Africa-China relations? There was something of a, a, a quarrel when citizens from Togo, Nigeria and Benin were treated extremely badly in one of the major cities in southern China. Does that get resolved by diplomats or are there deeper problems, for example, around issues more profound like the writing off of debt? Well, this was a particularly tricky moment in, in China-Africa diplomacy um, because on the one hand, China is a, is a key partner in, in COVID-19 mitigation in, um, in Africa. So, you know, there's like we've seen numerous uh, donations from, from various Chinese actors, including corporations and you know, kind of even like business associations and the government of different kinds of protective gear and testing kits and so on to Africa. So, so they've really helped a lot. Um, at the same time, it is also the moment when a mix of racism and overzealous policing of, uh, of uh, a COVID-19 spike that, that occurred in, in Guangzhou in southern China led to the, the expulsion of a whole bunch of African, African migrants, um, and a lot of them then ended up just sleeping on the street. Um, and this has really caused massive diplomatic problems between between various African countries and China, particularly between Nigeria and China, where the, the Nigerian government announced, or the, the Nigerian House of Representatives tabled a, a measure um, to investigate all Chinese businesses and all Chinese citizens, their, their immigration status in, in Nigeria. So it was a real blow up between the two. Um, and it, it made it really difficult um, <clears throat> it, because it also it reflects... Um, 
a civil society, a split, a, a split between between how the experience of of being in a relationship with China, how that is is reflected in Africa, which turns out to be a lot more negative than than many governments have assumed, and then also a, a split between African civil society and African leaders, because a lot of African leaders are very um, very focused on moving past this controversy towards trying to negotiate a debt relief deal with China, which is a very, very pressing issue. Um, but at the same time, we're seeing a lot of pressure in African civil society to take, to take harder action on, on the, the, the issue in, in Guangzhou. So it's a, it's a really difficult moment. Um, it, it's made even more difficult by the fact that um, the African leaders are also busy negotiating with, um, with private lenders at the same time, which, you know, kind of, which makes uh, the negotiation around what African debt relief will look like yes. even more tricky. So, Greg Mills, I guess same theme for you. Reset of China-Africa relations. Will there be one? And if so, what would it look like? Well, I think I, I would, would hope that uh, African leaders would squeeze the Chinese for better deals. I mean, although the treatment of African citizens uh, in China gets the headlines, the really interesting bit is about uh, the Chinese not wishing to reschedule loans. Uh, as part of the G20 compact deal towards Africa on, in, in the wake of COVID. So, which is a roughly, it's all the commercial loans that were made under the, the Belt and Road Initiative, which is the best part of a billion and a half uh, US, US dollars. So, you know, it's a, it's China's relationship with Africa has largely been not about aid, it's been about loans. It's not about giving money away. It's been about lending money and sometimes not at particularly preferential rates. It's been a business transaction. Now, that's an important source of financing for development. Financing for development is crucial uh, if you're going to uh, uplift yourself. But, but the way in which some of these deals have happened, the, way, the, the uh, opacity around some of these deals, one would hope that Africa could use this as an opportunity to improve transparency uh, particularly African civil society uh, would be able to leverage this and to get better preferential, more preferential terms to some of these loans. Uh, put them more on the basis that uh, that Afri- Africa enjoys with its, its Western lending institutions. So I think when we think of a reset in China-Africa relations, and I think that COVID does offer that opportunity, yes. one thinks of this as being more of a balanced relationship, less the 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 bigger donor uh, than more of equal partners. The Chinese love to say win-win. It generally tends to mean they win twice. It would be nice to see Africa win and China win. So let's turn a little our attention a little bit to the United States. Uh, Quibus van Staden, the uh, Israeli academic Noah Yuval Harari, uh, has this to say. The current U.S. administration has abdicated the job of leader. It has made it very clear that it cares about the greatness of America far more than about the future of humanity. And goes on to say, this is an article from the Financial Times. If the void left by the U.S. isn't filled by other countries, not only will it be much harder to stop the current epidemic, but its legacy will continue to poison international relations for years to come. Is a U.S. uh, government that is less interested in being a world leader in that way necessarily a bad thing? 
I think it. I think it depends a lot on on what we have in its place. Um, because if you know the, the problem, the problem with U.S. leadership at the moment is it's not only uh, you know kind of a, a retreating from from leading, it's retreating from a set of of organizations that the, that the U.S. has uh, to a certain extent built um, in, in you know in the aftermath of the Second World War. Um, so, for example, the the U.S. has been actively undermining the World Trade Organization, um, and um, you know kind of it, it is. We've seen a lot of, of withdrawal from multilateral um, agencies and, and organizations where the U.S. played a, a very central role. So the question then becomes, you know, the, the issue isn't only that the U.S. is is, um, is you withdrawing itself. It's that um, in, in the way that it is withdrawing, it's undermining a lot of organizations that we need at the moment in order to have some kind of unified decision making. Um, you know, because one of the one of the big crises of the COVID nineteen um, pandemic has been that every country is in it for themselves, and you're seeing you're seeing kind of national governments only thinking about about countries rather than thinking about regions or continents. And in the process, you have a situation where it's very easy, for example, for for um, for rich countries to arrange finance like emergency financing to 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 buoy up their own economies, yes. whereas it becomes almost impossible somehow for them to get together. Uh, you know, to, to actually have any kind of unified um, approach to African debt relief, even though African countries, in a lot of ways, um, you know, are, are, you know, have been at exemplary repayment rates, and you know, it's not like African countries are themselves, you know, these kind of basket cases, and in many, you know, some are, but you know, um, in, in, across the board, it's more that there isn't just just any kind of bandwidth beyond the national government level to 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 do anything, and to a large extent, the U.S. withdrawal from these kind of markets institutions is making that a lot worse. Greg Mills, I mean, SA-US relations, opportunities on the one hand, pitfalls and perils on the other. What's the balance for you? Well, traditionally, I mean, we, we have a very strong business relationship with the United States. Uh, there's, you know, the best part of half a million jobs that in some shape or form dependent on, on U.S. investment. Uh, there's a very strong trade relationship. The U.S. is a very large donor. Uh, not least around uh, HIV-AIDS treatment, best part of half a billion U.S. dollars annually. And, of course, that applies right across the Af- African continent, too. Um, uh, and then the, the paradox of this is, of course, we have a very poor political relationship. Um, uh, we don't vote uh, with the United States uh, in just about anything in the, in the uh, U.N. Security Council, and it's extremely politically adversarial. So it's... It, it, very schizophrenic, and one would like to see an end to the schizophrenia. I'm not that pessimistic uh, uh, as a result of COVID. I think COVID presents huge challenges, uh, of course, to our economies in the short term. Uh, They cannot in any way be understated or underestimated. But there are long-term, I think, trends which could potentially benefit stronger ties both with China and with the United States. The imperative of bandwidth that's something that is now non-negotiable, as it were, to a country's development future. The importance of of uh, uh, building strong uh, uh, food production systems uh, across countries, and the importance of healthcare, of health being the new wealth. Uh, uh, all of these, I think, push relations uh, strongly outwards with both China and the U.S. And we shouldn't. We should. We should be seeking to get maximum advantage of all of our partners, not just beating up on one. So, I think a more pragmatic view 
uh, one that's perhaps less political, um, one that looks fundamentally at what's in it for us, it would be would be a breath of fresh air. And I think traditionally South Africa has always taken the view that we can afford to be more radical in our foreign policy because it doesn't cost anything. So yes. we can we can beat up on the US at the UN Security Council. We can cuddle up to Cuba and you know whoever else we want to cuddle up to Iran, uh, and and no one really takes any notice. I think in a world of heightened tensions, as we are seeing at the moment, these these types of relationships do have have costs associated with them, and we should be quite careful and quite prudent and quite strategic about our partnerships and and have very much a South Africa first uh, starting point in the way in which we. We prosecute them. So, van Sudden, how, how skilled is South Africa in that space that Dr. Mills has just outlined, uh, both up to now, but in terms of plotting the way forward? Do you have a sense that uh, South Africa knows what it needs to do in this complicated space with large elephants fighting in a small confine? It's a it's a tricky question, um, you know, because because South Africa is always has always kind of plotted its own course, but at the same time, frequently in in ways that didn't particularly you know kind of make life make life easy for cooperation. Um, I, I think at the moment, you know, in, in the post Zuma era, I think South Africa is, is generally focused on uh, on trying to maximise relationships and uh, particularly economic relationships, um, and you know at the same time also also walking this line between between China. And Africa, and for South Africa, it's particularly complicated because because it is such a major partner for China on the continent, um, and traditionally a, a major partner for the U.S. on the continent. Um, so, so kind of balancing those those two um, is difficult, particularly in you know kind of in a moment where on the both sides in in the U.S. and in China we're seeing a lot of the discourse becoming increasingly acrimonious, um, and you know that that on both sides there seems to be a, a, a strong kind of line of thinking, a kind of a zero sum game way of thinking about international relations. Um, so, you know, so, so yeah, so, so it's a lovely way of saying, um, you, you know, kind of, I think that they are trying to kind of move forward and particularly trying to, to maximize continental connections in order to, to push for, for unified goals. Um, you know, as we've seen, for example, in, in the current discussion around debt relief, so, so yes. I think has been, has been a real leader on, on that and then using his position in the G20 to, 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 to push for that, uh, you know, for that relief in the G20 context. But at the same time, it's a difficult thing because, because South Africa is being pulled on both sides. Let's talk about initiatives across the African countries through organizations like the African Union, perhaps others. To what extent does cooperation, particularly in a time of crisis like this, override what may be a natural competition? For example, if there's going to be a new car plant built, it could be in Botswana, but it could also be in South Africa. How much is Africa's commitment to working together rhetoric and how much of it is actually real? I think that's a great question, John. Um, I, I think the way in which African countries respond to this crisis, uh, and there will be difference in that, of course, um, whether they get their own house in order, um, whether they're able to put the conditions in place for increasing diversification, I think will lead inevitably to greater differentiation across the continent. So I don't see that necessarily as a bad thing, because I think you need performers and reformers uh, to be able to show the way to others in your region, just as happened in Asia what uh, more useful policy paths are. Um, and and increase, I think in the, historically, 
we've always had a sort of one-size-fits-all approach to African development. Uh, we've been very dependent on, on, on the larger countries, the regional sort of giants like South Africa, Ethiopia, Nigeria, for example. And they have traditionally performed, at least in economic and developmental terms, very poorly. So we, we've tended to, to come up with very bland, common denominator type policy. Some of them are very admirable, like the African free trade uh, area. Yes. Uh, these might happen over time. They're not very pragmatic. They're not about let's fix, fix by bridge or let's fix Chirundu uh, or Chigutu. Wherever these, these blockage, blockage points exist, we'll go for an entire African-wide uh, um, free trade agreement. I, I would hope that a consequence of this, this uh, uh, pandemic, that Africa will seek to be more competitive between countries and less sort of dumbed down to the lowest level within the African Union. It's a very important platform, undoubtedly, to align policy in particular ways. But it should be a platform from which countries leap at different heights. Um, and one would hope that some countries would leap much higher now uh, in terms of, of positioning themselves for some of those jobs, as we mentioned earlier. They're going to come to the continent because they're going to move away from China. They're going to onshore, reshore, whatever. Uh, but they're going to come to Africa. We're going to improve our logistics. We're going to open our economies at different rates. And I think that's an inevitable part of development. Yes. Development is not about moving 55 countries at the same plodding speed uh, across the continent. It's about letting countries do things at different rates and speeds and benefiting from them. John Pullman is exploring the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the trajectory of political and socio-economic development. Stay with unions, uh, Quibus, and, and ask you about the EU. Um, that appears to be taking strain on a number of levels. There's a north-south divide. The south has been hammered much harder. Spain and Italy come to mind uh, by COVID-19. And there's sharp differences over financial support. Nine countries put forward a proposal for something called uh, a corona bond, uh, whereas other countries like Germany have been pushing back and saying, actually, no, we don't want to be jointly responsible for these bailouts. What's the future of the EU? Does it tighten? Does it strengthen around a crisis? Or do we see national uh, interests asserting themselves and staying asserted? Um, you know, I'm hesitant to say that this is the end of the EU, but at the same time, um, the you know, the, the EU hasn't... The, the, it, it, the, the EU as a community hasn't been as proactive in, in working together as I had expected. Um, you know, I was a little, a little surprised when I saw, as I saw the, the kind of COVID crisis roll out across Europe, that that there seemed to be relatively little energy put into into unified, coordinated responses, and, and, and a lot of a lot of the decision making, a lot of the the approaches fell back on on national governments. So that I just took as a as a as a somewhat worrying sign, um, you know, because if, if there's any moment when the EU should have been working together as a, as a unit now. Um, and so, so you know, kind of that, that didn't inspire a lot of confidence in me. Um, at the same time, I think from now on, we might well see the, you know, a, 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 a new, a renewed kind of role for these kind of multilateral institutions, um, you know, to try and, to try and, and work into, to move into a, a post-COVID reality, particularly one where we different kinds of social control is going to become more and more important. 
Um, so, you know, kind of, um, I, I think, you know, it's, it's too early to, to kind of count it out, but, but, but so far the EU's um, record has not been stellar for me. Greg Mills, Africans listening to this might say that's Europe's problem, not ours. But does the strengthened and nature of the of the European Union have a strong bearing on on uh, on the way Africa progresses in its relationship with European countries, or are most of those relationships bilateral? Yeah, I think just adding to what Corbis has said, there's um, there's probably some degree of of division within the European Union. I mean, obviously, smaller countries are going to be looking towards a union as, as a, a saviour in COVID. Uh, um, the, you know, the, the smaller countries which were already stressed in financial terms, think Greece here, uh, for example. So the European Union probably becomes more important than ever before. One dimension that we perhaps haven't thought about is inevitably this is going to provide more pressure on migration. Uh, it's going to provide more pressure on migration within the Union, uh, but into the Union as well, from the Middle East uh, and also from, from Africa. And one only has to look back over the last five years and seen some of the internal political difficulties that the Union has experienced as a consequence of a million refugees coming in in 2015, 2016. I mean, the Union really did threaten to tear itself apart and yes. you could say that out of that came Brexit. Uh, um, you know, this, 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 this pressure internally and externally. Now, look, if the consequences of COVID are, are a doubling or quadrupling or even greater numbers of refugees into the European Union, the political consequences of that are potentially massive. And one wonders how they will be able to keep it together without sort of um, recalibrating the benefits and nature of the compact that's created the union in the first place. I, I think it's very difficult for countries to to work together in every field. Um, there are political differences. There are social and cultural differences. Uh, there are totally different economic strengths. And the European Union, of course, has taken this right to the very edge in terms of a monetary union, in terms of regulation about distance. This is about every facet of life. And one wonders whether you will see a retreat from that edge towards some of the more kind of prosaic, more fundamental ties that the union, that created the union in the first instance. So I, I, I don't believe it's going to disappear. Yes. I think there's always going to be a core group of countries uh, in which there's a common interest to, to maintain the European Union as, as a, in terms of why it was formed in the first instance. But one wonders whether there won't be a rolling back of some of the maybe more superfluous aspects of, of multilateralism. And I think here particularly uh, in terms of the euro. Kurvis van Sarden, let's, let's look at one more big player, Russia under pressure from a number of forces, a steep worldwide decline in oil prices. Uh, one third of that country's revenue comes from energy exports, uh, a, a fast and, and, and sharply rising trend in COVID-19 infections. W- where does this pandemic leave Russia as a player on the global stage and, and with particular reference to our continent, if you can? Yes, the, the, the energy situation uh, and, and the collapse in the oil price puts Russia in a particularly difficult position. 
Um, at, at a moment when it was busy ratcheting up its its international influence, um, not only through you know through through all of this kind of its its role as a kind of a you know as a wild card in many other countries' elections is obviously one part of that, but also it was formally busy ratcheting up its, its presence in Africa. Um, you know there were a lot of, there were several kind of um, uh, initiatives to to increase Russian influence on on the continent. Um, at the moment, it seems like it, like in the short term, um, the crisis will you know will tend to focus um, attentions domestically in Russia, among others, because because you know I think that the crisis and uh, the and uh, the oil price crisis, um, the the connection of those two crises, um, is putting uh, Vladimir Putin into a, a harder position domestically, um, which would then you know he you know looking at the past, he would then tend to to respond to through a mixture of of misinformation and um, and kind of crackdowns on, on freedom of expression. Um, you know, so, so I can I can well imagine that in the short term Moscow will be pretty preoccupied with these issues. However, I think um, in, in the slightly longer term, I don't know that that would necessarily change uh, their kind of larger mission to try and, and reinvigorate Russian influence in the global south, particularly in, you know, in the context that I don't think the, the Chinese increase in their influence on the global south is going to go away because, um, because of the crisis. So I would assume that, you know, kind of like once, once bandwidth and, and, and material conditions, you know, make it possible that they might well want to contribute continue that but what it what would you know kind of what would constitute constitute a, a kind of a workable material situation in the face of, of a pandemic and a crisis um is, is a different question and and finally greg mills you you've written on the subject the african continent and our country as well in that mix is going to be asking the rest of the world for money in various forms and 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 you've set out very strongly uh the need for us to move away from aid. If not aid, then what? As we move into this post-corona world, I would have thought that who you owe money to is going to be a huge determinant of uh, global politics. Tell us your thoughts on how we move away from aid and move to something better. Well, overall, I think uh, aid has been remarkably ineffective as a developing tool. Uh, It's only in in a handful of cases um, and most of them outside of Africa, where aid has been effective as in building infrastructure, places like Vietnam, uh, uh, South Korea, and so on, um, because it had such strong local ownership uh, in these processes, with the soft money used for good purposes. Most of the money to Africa today is not aid, as we traditionally understand it. You know, uh, free money, um, most of the Foreign assistance that's coming to Africa, 90% of it is is in the form of grants, uh, um, uh, money that's given with very little interest rates and very long repayment period. Um, and that has to be used very wisely. Uh, and, and it has to be used in the way that benefits the productive side of the economy. So I'm not against aid per se. It's just another form of borrowing money to build a business. If the state is your business, you borrow the money wisely and you and you spend it on the things that increase the size of your business. Um, and don't squander it on stadiums and other vanity projects because that generally doesn't tend to do that. Uh, so what, what where it works is at the one end of the spectrum uh, in, in countries which need humanitarian assistance. That's the traditional form of aid. The folk who need food, that need basic services and disaster relief, that type of thing. 
And, and aid has a very definitive role to play in that regard. At the other end of the spectrum, it's really about borrowing for development. And you need local ownership. You need the right uh, sorts of projects to be able to turn that into uh, a, a development asset for the country. And too often in Africa, uh, money has been thrown at the recurrent side of the budget on expenditure, uh, on salaries, on people, and much less on, on more productive aspects. Uh, my fear out of this is that we will borrow very heavily. It won't be so much aid as just simply borrowing and borrowing commercially. Um, South Africa is going to have to borrow very heavily to build, to build a 500 billion rand war chest, for example. Some of that money it'll come, will come from the World Bank and perhaps even from the IMF. That'll come with, with degrees of conditions. But the money that it borrows on international markets won't come with conditions. It will come with high rates of interest. So we're going to have to invest that money very wisely. Otherwise, what we're going to do is just simply increase our debt stock, which is very low currently, admittedly, increase our debt stock with very little to show for it. Um, so this combination of ownership, the right areas of expenditure, very prudent management of the expenditure, I think should guide whatever aid or borrowings that we do in a post-COVID world, just as it should have guided us before COVID. That hasn't really changed. Whether we choose to borrow money um, on less preferential terms, let's say from the Chinese, in order to be able to keep our economy going and to keep our civil service uh, um, paid, uh, that would be probably a slippery slope, slope to uh, developmental oblivion. We're going to have to be very prudent in the way in which we, we go about our borrowings uh, in international markets. So, so Kubis van Staden, in, in a situation like this, are we going to see ultimately the best of creative minds, of, of expansive thinkers around politics, or is the narrow, self-protective, fearful mindset ultimately going to prevail? I know it'll be different in every country, but if you were to average it across the globe, uh, what's your best hope? What's your worst fear? I think it's going to be a kind of an un, a complicated mix of those two. Like on the one hand, I think some very narrow and that kind of backward-looking interests will prevail in in, a, in several countries. And then, you know, I think we we've seen even before the pandemic, we've seen, we've seen a real lurch rightward in, in, in many influential countries. Um, and uh, you know, the the COVID um, system, the, the COVID crisis has has exacerbated a lot of these stresses, including including a kind of a disillusionment with with expertise and frequent even a, a loss of a, a sense of a shared truth at all. Um, so I think those, you know, the, those effects will keep playing out. Um, on the other hand, I think it's also, you know, it's not only that it's, that it's an opportunity for, for innovation. I think there is, there's already a lot of very innovative discussions going on. And we've seen um, discussions about about uh, instruments that in the past had been completely just on the, on the kind of even, you know, on the fringes of academic discussion, suddenly being being discussed in mainstream circles. So, for example, like, you, you know, there's a strong um, uh, political discussion at the moment in, in the U.S. about, about the, the possible uses of, of basic income grants, which had been completely off the table, you know, before the crisis. Yes. So I think there is space for, for innovation, but the, it, it really has to be thoughtful. I think, um, you know, because there is such a strong pull in the direction of authoritarianism and it just in 
in the, into a kind of a lunatic fringe, you know, denial of reality in, in, in many countries. Like, you know, putting forth a, a shared goal and a shared truth is a really important job for civil society to move into. Thank you very much to my two guests in this fascinating discussion, Dr. Greg Mills, Director of the Brenthurst Foundation. Thanks for giving us your time. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure. And joining us as well on Beyond Corona, Dr. Kubis van Staden from the South African Institute of International Affairs. Thanks very much for your insights and wisdom too. Thanks so much for having me. And from me, John Pullman, thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Kaya FM in partnership with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation.